When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number Stores or SleepNumber.com. Truth and Movies. On this 60th episode, Josh Brolin and Benicio Del Toro are back for another action-packed trip south of the border in Sicario 2 Soldado. You want to see this thing through? I'm going to have to get dirty. Then we welcome the return of director Deborah Granick with her survivalist father-daughter drama, Leave No Trace. That wasn't where I was supposed to be, so they took me away. And in Film Club, we look back at Deborah Granick's previous film, Winter's Bone, the independent drama that gave Jennifer Lawrence her first big break. Do you have any brothers or sisters that might be able to help? I got a little brother and a little sister, 12 and 6. Well, who's taking care of them right now? I am. All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. It's Michael Leader here in the host seat again, sitting across from Little White Lies, Adam Woodward. Hi. And Manuela Lazic. Welcome back, Manuela. Hello. How are we all doing today? Very well in this very sunny day. In a nice air-conditioned room, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we have a bit of correspondence from the previous couple of episodes about hereditary. This is Ben from Devon saying, Great discussion about Hereditary on your latest podcast. Having watched it and enjoyed it greatly, I was struck by the amount of comparisons I felt between the film and the last third of Ben Wheatley's 2011 masterpiece, Kill List. Without wanting to give any spoilers, there were several set pieces and important plot points that both films shared. Did anyone else notice this? Now, I think, am I right in thinking I'm the only one that's seen both these films? I really want to see Hereditary mm-hmm. in a cinema. Yeah. I've just been watching too much football. <laughs> and haven't haven't carved out a, a few hours in my week yet. But it's on my to-watch list. I will go and see it. But mm-hmm. yeah, Kill List is, is really great. Kill List really is terrific. And I think what Ben is getting at here is this mixture of family drama, the family breaking down, and this mysterious thread through the film about a cult that may or may not be affecting the family. And, it, and both Hereditary and Kill List really go is, there in its final third. Is it as ambiguous as Kill List? I've heard it's not. Hereditary. Mm. I think Hereditary falls down in a less ambiguous oh, way. Right. Yeah. I haven't seen Hereditary. I'm 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 very scared. You got killed. No, neither. Actually, I'm very bad with uh, not with horror movies, but with you know shock mm-hmm. horror movies. Like I'm always really excited to see them, and then when I'm sitting down just before the movie starts, I realize I'm about to see something very scary, and I'm like, why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. But then I have a good time sometimes. Uh, when I saw The Witch at TIFF, that's exactly what happened a few mm-hmm. years ago. I was stuck between a lot of people, and during the film I was freaking out, and they were probably thinking, why is she here? But I had a great time. Yeah. So maybe I will see it. Maybe will. And 
Kill List might be a good film club pick in the future. Definitely. One definitely to watch in the best audio surroundings possible because mm. the sound design, kind of like with Hereditary, the sound design creates such a tense atmosphere throughout. Mm. So much in there. Anyway, thank you, Ben. If you want to send any more comments to us, you can send us an email at truthandmovies at tclondon.com or on Twitter at LWLies or there's a comments section at lwlies.com slash podcast. So shall we get cracking with the reviews this week? First up today, Sicario 2 Soldado. Here's a clip from the trailer. How would you define terrorism? Current definition is any individual or group that uses violence to achieve a political goal. The administration believes that the drug cartels fit that definition. see this thing through, I'm going to have to get dirty. Josh Brolin there. He's back with Benicio Del Toro in tow for the sequel to Denis Villeneuve's 2015 thriller. This time the war against the Mexican cartels is escalating when it's revealed that they may be trafficking terrorists across the border. Now, Adam, you have written the review for Little White Lies. Yes. We have a quote here, a grimly macho action movie. Uh, did we need a sequel to Sicario, do you think? Well, um, I think it's interesting that this... So this is the second part, effectively, mm. of a proposed Sicario trilogy. And watching the first film, which I think we saw in Cannes in 2015, yeah. would not have expected there to be two other mm-hmm. Sicario films. But it does sort of make sense in that, effectively, they've just done the same thing again. It's clearly got a bit of a bigger budget, so you have a few more like helicopter shots and a few mm-hmm. more explosions. Effectively, Benicio Del Toro's character replaces... Emily Blunt from the first film mm. um, as the sort of film's emotional centre. Yeah. But yeah, for me, it was like much the same experience as, as the first film. Mm-hmm. Um, started off really well, kind of tapers out towards the end and, and just left me feeling, put me in a weird mood, actually. It just mm-hmm. I felt like it was very, very sort of self-serious and cynical and not quite what I needed from, you know, a cinema going experience. Yeah, you talk about it having a, seeming to have a larger budget, but it's hard not to see this almost as a bargain basement sequel when you don't have the same director, you don't have the same star, the same cinematographer, Roger Deakins, who shot the last one, of course, being one of the most fetid uh, cinematographers of his generation, composer Johan Johansson, another person that was singled out in reviews for a very well-reviewed film, Sicario 2015. You don't have them returning, you don't have Emily Blunt as the emotional core. Mm. It's hard not to see this as a, you know, the B team, in a way. Yeah, just a note on the score, actually. I, I really found it quite overbearing, mm. the compositions here. It's just full of those generic horn blasts that you associate with like Hans Zimmer and which is um, a shame because Johan Johansson passed away tragically in, in February this year and it's Hilda Goodner's daughter his sort of co-composer mm. Icelandic cellist who takes over here and it doesn't really find an identity in the way that the the score did in the last one mm. Manuela what's your relationship with the Sicario franchise and how did the sequel pan out for you uh, I mean it's hard to say if it's worse or if it's just as bad but um <laughs> so i watched the first one the night before seeing the mm. new one and i was completely appalled i can't believe this is a movie that people take seriously i think it's absolute trash and it's vile and the new one is kind of worse in that 
It's trying to have its cake and eat it too, a lot mm. more, because the first one was more about Americans, you know, doing bad things, but saying, well, this is how it is, it's the war, mm. so we don't have a choice. Whereas this one is more Americans doing things and saying this is how it is, but also at some point realizing that they're wrong, but then doing it anyway. And so they're, they're just like, they're trying to be the heroes at the same time as they mm. are the villains. And it's so disingenuous. It's so petty and then they will be saying well this is what Americans do you know mm -hmm. like yeah but I don't need a movie about this and the worst thing is that at some point near the beginning I was actually crying because I was so upset because right. in, this, in the second film in the second mm. film because there's a basically the film makes a direct connection between immigration at the Mexican border and terrorist mm -hmm. and I was just like this is the absolute last thing I need to see in a movie and it's so so dishonest and it's so vile it's, it's okay. absolutely insane it's interesting it. both Sicario 1 and, and this one that they're not interested in being pious films at all they're mm. ripping from the headlines from the political situation right now and spinning it into what is sort of airport thriller sort of mm. material what made the first film stand out was that it had this veneer of classic yeah. filmmaking mm. Denis Villeneuve who's such a craftsman and all these other craftsmen behind mm. the scenes mm. and this film once you take some of that away this is much more of an exploitation movie. Yeah, but it's it's interesting because I think, in a way, the first one, in the opposite way, it, it was worse for me because of that veneer. Mm -hmm. Because that veneer made it pass as good. Mm -hmm. And everybody was like, well, yeah, it's not great politically, but, oh, it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I hate when people do that. It's like, no, a movie's a whole thing. You can't take one thing and like not think about the politics. Whereas this one, in a way, it's more honest because yeah. it's more bluntly cruel and silly. But this, so. is, this is part of the world, the sort of narrative fictional world that the screenwriter Taylor Sheridan is, is creating with his films. Mm. He, he wrote the first Sicario that brought him to attention. He's made since films like uh, Wind River, uh, Hello High Water, mm -hmm. these sort of semi-Western, neo-Western heist movies, thrillers that are very interested in very macho archetypes yeah. in modern day political situations. Adam, these themes, do they trouble you about this film or is well, it enjoyable as an action thriller? I or? think from a craft point of view, there's certainly you yeah. know, some good set pieces and there's some good cinematography and there's some stuff to enjoy. Yeah. I think Manuela makes a good point on the politics and how the film like conflates quite pointedly conflates these ideas of like human trafficking and immigration mm. and also American uh, foreign policy yeah. and national security and all these things. It doesn't really make a comment on that stuff mm -hmm. for me, or it's at least not a strong enough it. one. Yeah, it just, just kind of uses it. for suspense it. and mm -hmm. for plot twists in a way that's so disingenuous. But at the same time, what I was thinking watching it is, uh, oh, this is insane, an American... Secretary of State mm -hmm. would never order such an insane thing. But then I was like, well, the president did put children in cages last week, so who knows? Mm -hmm. And well, I think it's very interesting to look at films where there's a real, where there's an American president in now because of the situation. It makes everything so, takes at the same time so much uh, meaning, but at the same time it's completely pointless because we have no idea what he's doing. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's very upsetting to watch, I think. Okay. It's interesting for me. It reminds me of films I, I would have watched growing up, maybe late night on ITV with my granddad. You know, these masculine films, sort of maybe from a Tom Clancy novel, mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. it's Clint Eastwood or Harrison Ford taking on the IRA or taking yeah, yeah. on anonymous terrorists from the Middle East. And it seems so out of step mm -hmm. with this more, I don't want to talk about snowflake culture or anything like that, but we are much more aware of mm -hmm. what film can do and what film maybe should do or how it should deal and its responsibility towards 
the headlines. Yeah. That, that's kind of one of the the points I make in my review is that it doesn't feel like it has a sense of purpose or, mm-hmm. or a message. And yeah, in, in this sort of like, I mean, 2015, this is like pre-Trump, right? Mm-hmm. So at a time of, you know, fractious US-Mexico relations and, and, you know, the way all of this, the themes in this film are dealt with in like the media, mm-hmm. you just think it, it needs to be a bit more tuned into that and a bit more sensitive and actually maybe a bit more progressive and, and positive in its politics. Mm-hmm. I just, I didn't want something necessarily naive or overly optimistic, but just something that didn't feel so, as I say, grimly macho and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and yeah, very sort of gloomy. Yeah. Um, it, it reminded me, in, I don't know if you've seen the Ken Burns Vietnam War documentary no, yet, series. No. It's really good stuff in that about how essentially Robert McNamara, who's like the Secretary of State at the time, knew basically that they couldn't win the war from like very early on, and they kind of carried carried on with it and dug themselves into this very deep hole. And you know, all this stuff obviously came out later on. So I think the representation of people in men in very powerful positions in in the U.S. government making these decisions, there is a sort of like kernel of truth to that mm-hmm. mm, definitely but the way it sort of parcels that out and the way as you say uses it as a quite a kind of cheap plot mechanic mm-hmm. without really commenting or even actually sort of condemning these people um, yeah it's it's again i think we think that taylor sheridan does a lot is uh, fake ambiguity mm-hmm. he's just kind of presenting both sides and at the end you're just like oh i don't I don't know, it's bad, but circumstances. And it's so petty. Like, if you're a filmmaker, you better have a point of view, you know? Otherwise, what are we watching? I can watch the news and and not know what to think. But if you make a movie, have a point of view and have the courage of your point of view and don't don't pretend to be ambiguous Mm. when you just want to please both sides. Mm -hmm. I just found that so pointless. Um, There is one really good scene, I think, in the movie, which is... Bit later on, where Benicio del Toro's character is he's essentially on the run, and he's in yeah. the Mexican desert, and he mm. comes across this this farmer, this like peasant guy, and he he starts communicating him uh, with him using sign language, and yeah. we, we learn a bit more about Benicio del Toro's character's backstory. And it's just like a really beautiful scene about human connection, mm-hmm. and it feels like at that point the film's reaching for you know a statement or a message or mm-hmm. something. I don't. You're looking at me, Manuel, like you thought that was the, the worst scene in the film. But. I think uh, not the worst because I love bad ones but I found it so <laughs> forced and it's like oh well hitmen have feelings too well it's and an interesting it's part petty. isn't it where um, the first film had this quite interesting structure where the first half of Sicario you're Emily Blunt and you're being introduced to this crack team mm. who present themselves as being advisors to the Department of Justice mm-hmm. but really they're a death squad pretty much that are meant to shake things up in the in, in Mexico and in the second half the the perspective shifts on to Benicio Del Toro's character who is turns out to be the Sicario of the title the hitman mm. and for this film, when you don't have the emotional centre, you have to shift perspective onto Josh Brolin and Benicio Toro's characters. And I think that one of the problems with the film is it doesn't really know what to do, how to make mm. either of them into protagonists, how to make them into co-protagonists or whatever. Yeah. But that's not necessarily the fault of the actors behind the characters. I think Benicio Del Toro is one of the greatest of his generation still. Mm. He can do so much with so little. And I know you have a you interviewed him over the weekend, Adam, didn't you, Benicio? Yeah, I spoke to him actually specifically about his... Um, quite distinctive mode of performance and mm-hmm. he, he seems to eschew that very, I think he gives muscular performances but in a very unshowy mm. um, way where he's not so much posturing and I mean Josh Brolin in this and, and I like Josh Brolin to an extent but 
so much of what he does relies on this like framework that's built around him oh, so he yeah. can he can kind of do his big blustery mm-hmm. his arms um, in this movie are insane yeah <laughs> and there's lots of shots oh where God. he's wrapping his arm in gauze and yeah. Kind of yeah, flexing yeah. And, and Del Toro doesn't do any of that and mm-hmm. he doesn't really need to he, he carries so much more weight with simple gestures and, and his just, face just his face yeah, yeah. and his actually so I think the reason I really in, enjoy that sign language scene is because he communicates obviously literally with the sign language but he mm. communicates so much more about his character yeah. and actually a little bit about the story and yeah he is like you say one of the one of the great actors of his generation mm-hmm. and just a really uh, commanding reliable presence so we have a clip from the interview should we listen to that now yeah let's well you know I just go on the character you know sometimes you know I don't know it's not always that I'm always kind of cutting lines in order to show something. It's just that sometimes in a script you read it and there is a character saying something and there's a description of what he's saying or what he's doing. And sometimes the writer is writing it for the reader and the reader is not watching it, is not seeing it, is just reading it. Might be seeing it in the in his imagination, but is not actually seeing it. So when you're actually doing it, you realize, why would I be saying I'm holding a microphone right now when you're actually doing it, you know? So that's kind of like, that's what happens a lot of the time. I also think that someone said that... uh, if you really want to know someone, watch their gestures and don't necessarily listen to their words because words can lie, whatever that means. But for me, what it means is like sometimes a gesture will speak volumes and uh, sometimes a gesture would do that much better than, than a great writer could. You know, um, I think that you see it, you know, in life. And some of us are more aware of it than others. And uh, when you're in the business of human behavior, you might be more aware of it than people who are not, you know. Benicio Del Toro there. I listened to an interview with Josh Brolin just this morning, and I love that he calls Benicio Benny. Mm. So I was thinking about this as the Benny and Josh movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, as you said, Adam, this is a setup for a potential trilogy. Yeah. After, on, on the basis of this, are we excited for Sicar 3 Or I just guess they'll do the same thing, so mm. maybe no. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't see how they can really progress the story in an interesting way. And, and Benicio Toro has surely signed up for the next one already. Mm-hmm. It's good to see him just doing his thing. He's sort of fairly self-deprecating. I think in that interview clip yeah. but he really is such a perceptive actor and, and as I say can communicate so much with doing so little really so I will always always watch what he's in and actually watching this did kind of make me think I, I must go and dig out my copy of Shea later when I get in oh, yeah. um, I will return for, for him and, and probably no one else Well, Watching him in this for me made me wish that he'd do what Liam Neeson, Sean Penn, etc., have done and do a sort of taken franchise. I'd love to see Benicio Toro is Alejandro Sicario, mm. uh, revenge thriller. I'd love to see that. Manuela, are, are you excited about what's to come for the franchise, or are you out now? I mean, I'm actually curious because the the second movie ends on a sort of cliffhanger. I mean, mm-hmm. not going to give anything away, but I I think it could be 
interesting. Mm-hmm. I don't want to have a bad time at the movies like that. I don't know. I don't like it. <laughs> It's so not great. <laughs> what scores would you give this one, Manuela? Oh, two. That's generous, yeah. but I will give it two because, well, Benicio is good. It's a bit more morally aware and ambiguous than the first one, but it's not that's not saying much. And uh, yeah, at the end, there's the original theme from the first uh, movie that is really good and it returns to its night. Mm-hmm. That's it. Adam? I think I'd go three for anticipation, three for enjoyment, mostly for Del Toro, and probably two for in retrospect. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I meant two all the way. Oh, two okay. all the way. <laughs> Uh, triple two. I think I'd say I, I enjoyed the last one on a craft level, so I, in anticipation three, but enjoyment two in, in, in retrospect two. I think one thing I would say that I did enjoy, I love that now we've gone down the list of female actors who mm. could play thankless government roles. We've come to Catherine Keener, oh, who's yeah. more seen in sort of indie comedy dramas, you know, walking and talking down a corridor. I don't, know if she's well, I don't know if she's well cast because she's so alive <laughs> and she's supposed to play someone who's kind of, you know, just very doing her dour job. And very, yeah, know. she's great to look at, to mm-hmm. see act, but I don't know if she matches the role. Well, I hope the paycheck was good. Yeah. So Sicario 2 Soldado, that's out this week. I don't think it's a strong recommendation <laughs> from the table today. Up next, though, Leave No Trace. So leave no trace. Ben Foster and Thomasin McKenzie are a father and daughter making a life for themselves in the middle of the forest on the outskirts of Portland, Oregon. That is, until they're discovered by the authorities and society comes calling. Here's a clip of young Tom in conversation with a group of girls at a care home. So what are you doing here? I wasn't where I was supposed to be, so they took me away. Well, they don't think I was where I was supposed to be. Okay, where were you? With my dad. In the park. So you were homeless then? No. Why else would you be living in the woods? Okay, if you had a home, they wouldn't have brought you here. Well, they just don't understand that it was my home. Where's your dad now? I think he's somewhere in this building. He's gonna come get me. Tiff, do you know when his parents come back for them? No. Me that was Thomasin McKenzie there, giving a great young performance, I thought, in Deborah Granick's Leave No Trace. Manuela, so were you a fan of Deborah Granick's work beforehand, Winter's Bone, and then into this one, or was this a fresh experience for you? Uh, this was a fresh experience for me. I, I watched uh, Winter's Bone for Film Club, mm-hmm. so I hadn't seen it before. But I, I quite enjoyed this one, Leave No Trace. I wasn't a huge fan, like a lot of people mm-hmm. have been. But it is a really good movie, and what I love particularly about it and about... Deborah Granick's work, which I realize now, is that she really brings out perspectives that we never really see. Mm. Uh, the kind of people that are not in movies, that are not the heroes of movies. And also she doesn't judge them. She doesn't judge either them or the people against them, because often it's outcast. She loves outcast. And she gives them a lot of uh, space to just be themselves and just live the life they want to live and also confront society but or the people around them but she she really never really judges either side which is really hard to do mm-hmm. i think and and it's not it's not a, uh, a lack of point of view at all it's more she's quite observant and she understands that life is complicated and people do things for certain reasons and in this movie in live no trace it's uh 
It's a very delicate subject because so this family, this father and his daughter living in the woods and we don't really get why mm. until quite into the movie. I don't want to spoil it, but it's a you know understandable at the same time not understandable reason because it's a very specific experience and it's not the kind of experience that people think about in real life and it's not the kind of people that people care about and that's the whole reason why they're in the woods because no one gives a cares about them mm -hmm. no one is there to look after them so they have to do it themselves but then society comes calling because society can't can't stand people you know doing it their own way and not harming anyone apparently so it's yeah i think i found it quite powerful i think it could have been a bit shorter and a bit more pointed and mm -hmm. uh less less slow mm -hmm. but um but it, it is good uh the young girl is pretty good i watched winter's bone and i think jennifer lawrence was astonishing and this girl is not Jennifer Lawrence but she's not bad well we'll talk about Jennifer Lawrence shortly yeah. what I love about Deborah Granick's films is that she is so they're so delicately balanced perspective wise mm. she's so curious about humanity and then humanity within these social structures so Winter's yeah. Bone is in, in sort of meth country and this one I expected something to be this to be just as miserable and mm. grim as mm. Winter's Bone but actually no it's a much more sweet and soulful and sad and melancholic film but yeah. its central questions are much more I don't want to say the word universal but they're much more human on mm. the level of father-daughter parental relationships finding your place in the world finding your place in relation to the do you want to say nanny states or the yeah. big society yeah. can someone live today with an independent mind and independent means mm -hmm. it's these are big questions yeah. but it's also quite a small movie mm -hmm. adam did you respond to this i think this has been quite well received in little white lies in general yeah absolutely um david of this parish is a, a big big fan mm. i think he's given it five stars and i think it's probably gonna be one of his yeah. top films of the year and and I, I think maybe didn't quite like it quite as much as him but i mean mm -hmm. it's just a, a hugely compassionate movie and like you say man it's not really critical of society or the systems that are in place and actually it shows that you know there are often support networks mm -hmm. and kind of parachutes for people in in these situations but it's not always a quick fix and you know there are people who who genuinely do care out there and, but it's a interesting struggle i think that they mm. that she portrays here between the regulations and the systems and everything that is in place for people to live comfortably and securely and then you know these these issues which specific to this character are quite hard to relate to actually yeah. if you've not experienced it yourself but i think that's more more power to Deborah Granite for the way she humanizes the character and mm -hmm. makes you um, really care about you know the, the particular journey of him and his daughter yeah and it's an interesting comparison point with Sicario too this is an equally apolitical film mm. but one that really does benefit from the aura of politics mm. These are, the, there are no maybe no um, bad guys in this film there's no finger pointing in either direction politically but there is this sense mm. of America that's falling away yeah I think Sicario it's more that everybody's a bad guy. Mm -hmm. So it's like, oh, well, you know, everything's bad. Whereas here, it's like, no one is really a bad guy. Everybody's just doing their best. And I think that's why, like, another thing I really like about the film is how it uses the father-daughter relationship to communicate on that idea of, you know, fitting into society or not. Because the little girl doesn't have her father's experience. You know, she's been with her father all her life, obviously. So she only knows that perspective. But once she discovers another one, she has to make that choice of whether or not, you know, she wants to 
stay with her father or you know find out what she wants to do mm-hmm. and that's and that kind of functions as a great microcosm or a metaphor for that thing of you know do I want to fit in society or do I want to be my own person and it's also about you know father and daughter that's that's a link that everybody can relate to mm-hmm. most people you know do I want to be my family's continuation or do I am I my own person mm-hmm. and I and I think in that movie it's shown in a very unique way it's not at all you know didactic it's very very weird and it goes yeah. one way and then the other one the other way and yeah it doesn't demonize anyone mm-hmm. it reminded me a little bit of two films in particular from the last couple of years one being room and the other being captain fantastic both films which are about parents bringing up their children in very specific circumstances cut off from wider society mm-hmm. and the way that the film in quite a detailed and textured way you have these early quite quiet scenes between thomas and mckenzie and ben foster of the life they lead the routine they lead how they survive out there in the forest the little workarounds that they've got the um drills they go through Mm -hmm. and I wonder why it's more successful than in particular Captain Fantastic which was um, Aragorn from Lord of the Rings Viggo Mortensen with his brood of weird kids it doesn't go in the direction that film does Uh, it goes in quite an unpredictable direction and a more compassionate one Mm. and there are details that crop in that I wonder come from Deborah Granick's background in independent film and documentary these little details and I wonder whether these little characters that pop up whether they're non-actors for example mm. the most zen cool dude truck driver in cinema history pops mm. up at one point <laughs> yeah. and it's a little, beautiful little sketch of a whole life in just one scene this man with his dog mm. on the, the great open road yeah. it's got many little details like that mm. uh, but we haven't talked about Ben Foster yet Ben Foster who to make another link with Sicario too he was in Hell or High Water that <laughs> yes. was written by Taylor Sheridan, and that was a f- performance that really re-announced him as an adult actor. Yeah, he was good. He's, what, what do you think of him in this, Adam? He's, he's good. He's someone who I don't often enjoy that much, actually. I feel like you can always tell with him that he's really kind of committed in a way which doesn't necessarily benefit the performance mm. or, or, or the character. Um, I, I mean, I've I seen him playing like Lance Armstrong, and there's a film, yes, that, that, what's the Woody Harrelson police rampart is it rampart, he plays yeah. like a I think he plays like a Vietnam veteran but he's in like a wheelchair in mm-hmm. that and he's just very you know he's a sort of capital A actor I think he's very intense very intense yeah. and often very good mm-hmm. but as I say in quite a kind of obvious showy way I totally agree um, and it's, but it's, I liked him in this yeah. I mean I think I think he's better than I thought he would be mm-hmm. but uh, I still think yeah I still think he's a bit not sure if he, but a bit intense. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, it's it's good, and he's clearly committed, and he clearly cares about his part. That's good for me. It's such a hard character to portray because yeah. you're seeing him from the perspective of this developing child's mind, as parent as God, parent as fallible, parent as vulnerable. All these things, mm. and he has to be all those things at once. He has to be the superhero that's living on the fringe of society, living independently. But then these doubts had to creep in about why he's there, mm. if if what he's doing is actually healthy and safe, mm. or mm. actually putting them all in danger. It's a very hard thing to play, and I still see him as. Uh, he played Angel in X-Men 3. Of course. Uh, the Last Stand, no one's uh, best work. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, me- I remember him well in that. In that yeah. film. Oh. But uh, <laughs> any final comments on, on Leave No Trace, Adam? There's a wonderful scene about midway through the film where they're trying to be assimilated into this 
it's like a kind of halfway house, but it's mm-hmm. like a f- working farm and it's Christmas um, tree the, the, farm. The, yeah, it's it? a Christmas yeah. tree farm, and, and uh, the character Tom meets a local boy, and he takes her to this like uh, rabbit grooming mm. workshop. Mm. And it's just a really beautiful scene where they're, where they're, these kids are being told how to correctly groom and handle a, an array of uh, bunnies, mm. and it's very sweet. It's very sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Manuela, any any sweet moments? <laughs> that moment was really sweet. I yeah. think I think Deborah Granick is really good with animals, and it's it's nice. It's yeah. always good. Always and and skinning that. animals usually. We'll come to that shortly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Adam, what scores would you give Lino Trace? I think I would give this fours across the board, and yeah, really love to see more Deborah Granick work. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is only her third feature, and she was so, yeah. about eight, seven or eight years between the first two, and mm-hmm. has been almost I think in twenty years almost yeah, three yeah. features, one documentary, um, yeah. and there's, yeah, obviously probably um, getting circumstances and reasons for that. Mm-hmm. But we just love to see more from her, mm. Manuela. Well, my anticipation wasn't anything substantial because I didn't know her work, but uh, otherwise, yeah, I would say enjoyment for and. In retrospect, for as well, I, I definitely would love to see more of her work because I think she's got such a, a considerate and kind and and smart perspective, and mm. we need more of that. We don't want more sicarios. One more, leave no trace. Okay, <laughs> and for me, fours across the board, same as Adam, and a recommendation from me. I think this seems to have the edge of a sicario too this week from us. <laughs> so that was Leave No Trace, directed by Deborah Granick, and now time for Film Club, which this week is Winter's Bone, also directed by Deborah Granick. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash post. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Winter's Bone, the film that announced Jennifer Lawrence onto the world stage. She stars as Ree, a teenage girl who is tasked with looking after her family while hunting down her ne'er-do-well father. Here she is looking at one route of opportunity. Do you mind me asking what happened to your, uh, your eye and your lip? I fell off my bike. Fell off a bike? Well, um, how old are you? 17. You're 17, okay. Now, if this is something you really wanted to do, We'd have to bring mom and dad in on this, okay? I can sign for myself. Not at 17, you can't. At 17, you're still considered a minor by the U.S. government, okay? You have to be 18 to sign up. Would it be a problem getting mom and dad in here? I mean, I can come out to you guys' house and... My mom's sick. My dad's gone. 
Well, do you have any brothers or sisters that might be able to help? I got a little brother, a little sister, 12 and 6. Well, who's taking care of them right now? I am. You are? Is that why you need the $40,000? Yes, sir. Well, it sounds like it might be a bigger challenge just to stay home, you know, and actually take care of your brother and sister because you know you're not going to be able to take them with you to training, right? I thought maybe I could. Not right at the beginning. Plus, you wouldn't be able to have them when you're actually in the active duty army because who's going to be there to take care of them if you had to go off and actually fight? Jennifer Lawrence there in her first big role. Adam, what have the listeners been saying about Winter's Bone? Uh, People are generally pretty positive on this. So we've got David Proctor who's tweeted in saying it's a classic, one of the best of the decade. Describes it as a backwards noir, which I quite like. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nick Imry says he saw it in Berlin in English as a choice between that and King's Speech. Nick, you made the right choice. I <laughs> uh, thought it was excellent with a fantastic Jennifer Lawrence. Most importantly, that's when my partner discovered she was pregnant with our son. That's very nice. Oh, that's very sweet. It's interesting there is a choice between that and King's Speech because this Winter's Bone was nominated for so many Oscars that year. And looking back at the Oscar season that year, that was the King's Speech, Black mm. Swan, The Fighter year. It's a big year. Yeah. And Jeez. Winter's Bone was you know, the, the smallest budget and the smallest gross of the bunch. Yeah, apparently it's the lowest grossing film nominated for Best Picture since 1983's The Dresser. Right, I haven't seen Which that I've one. never seen and do not know anything about it. I don't it know either. No. So there you go. <laughs> Any other tweets, Manuela? Uh, yeah, Chris Upton said, excellent film. The book by Daniel Woodrell is even better. I can see that. Yeah. And I'm going to try and pronounce this. Bjorna Fjelder said, I saw it at the Bergen International Film Festival and knew nothing about it. Jennifer Lawrence's performance blew me away. The soundtrack was original and raw. Yeah, the soundtrack was really interesting for both mm-hmm. these films. It's Dick and Hinchcliffe, who's one of Tindersticks, yeah. uh, kind of wow. going off on his own path and very sort of acoustic and atmospheric, very appropriate for the surroundings. Manuel, we've talked about performances for all these films today and you've been touting Jennifer Lawrence as a great performance here. What is it that you were responding to in Winter's Bone? I think she's so... It's really hard to play someone who is going through a lot of emotionally draining things and not just be crying the whole time. But she manages to communicate emotion without crying the whole time. And it's like, it feels very real and it's very honest and it's not show-offy at all it's not Mm -hmm. Ben Foster it's like it's very just totally committed and it's not just on the surface she just brings so much life to everything she does and I think that early film just showed so much promise and she delivered on that and it's it's just so refreshing. It's think, amazing. Do you think she's lived up to that promise in the years since? I think I so. Think so. Yeah. I mean, it depends what you're looking at. Mm-hmm. You know, for every joy, there's like a passengers. And increasingly, <laughs> she's been bogged down with like the X Men films. And mm-hmm. it'd be interesting to see yeah. where she goes from here. Because I think she was like 19 when she mm-hmm. made Winter's Bone. So she's still, you know, in her late 20s or something, yeah. like really young, has a lot of her career ahead of her so it'd be interesting to see where she goes from here I think she's done a lot of roles that are not maybe as interesting as this one but Mm -hmm. I think every time she really delivers she really does her best no one can take that away from her Mm -hmm. it's an incredibly mature performance isn't Mm. it considering her lack of experience at the time and um, you know what she's trying to convey this sense of like like just this weight and this burden that this character is carrying around and yeah it does feel very relatable you can imagine that there are a lot of young women in, in the world, in America especially, that are carrying these these burdens. Mm. And I just think that's the thing that really stuck with me. Both viewings have seen this film twice now. And, uh, yeah, just 
both times you really get that sense of the maturity of her performance. Mm. Mm-hmm. And how do you think Winter's Bone has aged? It's so interesting, as I said, about these Oscar films. They mm. become so scrutinised for a six-month period yeah. and then they're just put back on the shelf and then we move on to the next year. So revisiting this seven or eight years afterwards, um, it seems so interesting compared to Leave No Trace, which is a film that mm. just seems to just exist like real life in some on some levels, whereas Winter's Bone is definitely a mystery thriller, noirish mm. story. Yeah, it's definitely it hits a few more of those sort of genre beats mm. and as I say, it's weird that Deborah Granick didn't go on from that to make a kind of bigger mm-hmm. Oscar-y movie, really. Um, and I think Leave No Trace is, I, I would say, maybe a better film, actually. But I think so, yeah. feels more low-key. Um, I don't know. I haven't read the Daniel Woodrow novel, which this is based on. Yeah. Um, Winter's Bone. But yeah, possibly that's where that comes from. Maybe, maybe that is more of a kind of backwards noir thriller. But yeah, I, I just think it's a really impressive film yeah mm. any final comments Manuela I enjoy Winter's Bone more because of that genre thing I think because mm-hmm. it, it has this energy this like shock value a bit but it's not just shock it's it's it feels genuine and it feels true to the context but it, it, yeah it goes in insane places that I did not expect having seen Live No Trace first mm-hmm. so it was very interesting for me but um yeah no I think it it has this uh Real atmospheric thing, but I don't. I don't know if atmospheric is really the right, right word because when you say that, you expect something, you know, really moody. But it's not really like that. It's very much in nature mm-hmm. and every day. And in a way, it reminded me a lot of the Darden Brothers movies. Okay. Because there's a lot of moments when, not a lot, but there's, there's for instance, this scene you you played where she talks with the army recruiter, and it's very matter of fact, and mm-hmm. it's very like you can't do this, you have to do that, and that's. That doesn't feel forced. It feels just this is how it is. Mm-hmm. And it's her trying to find help in society. It's her circumstances being confronted with uh, insane things happening in her life. And then she has to move on. She has a family to take care of. And that realism is, I think, what makes makes it a weird genre film because mm-hmm. it's so realistic. Yeah, And it goes to really scary places, but it's still grounded in the daily need to, you know, provide for her family yeah that scene is so key to me and it's what i see so much in leave no trace it's this as i said not really finger pointing it's not it's quite a political mm. film i can imagine maybe more didactic films that would have the army recruitment officer yeah. kind of tip his hand either way but like the a fact Ken that he's, movie or something well yeah. exactly something <laughs> that is more directly a socio-realistic movie i find the connection with the dardens quite interesting they're the belgian brothers who yeah. you know european powerhouse couple any particular films you'd connect it with yeah i was thinking of uh, rosetta okay uh one of the earlier films where it's about this girl who she lives in some really like low income place mm-hmm. i can't remember exactly but she but at some point she tries to have a job at a ice cream seller and basically all her life is linked to this and it, it's it's amazing because they get so much tension from that simple thing because for her it's everything mm-hmm. and that really reminded me of that like the idea of uh, you know you you don't have a choice you just have to do whatever it takes to you know get some money because you need money to mm-hmm. eat and to survive because at some point that's what it comes down to and it's sad but that's reality and they have this really as well like considerate realistic approach yeah. you know kind of handheld and centered on performance as well. Mm-hmm. Like uh, the performance of the girl in Rosetta is reminding me of, Jennifer Lawrence reminded me of that one right. because it's so raw and it's so just, I'm dealing with stuff now. So Rosetta, that ends. Yeah. 
another recommendation there, maybe a future film club pick. Oh, yeah, definitely. definitely. And so I think that was Winter's Bone. Uh, what should we look forward to next week, Adam? Well, uh, yeah, it seems to be picking up again the, the, the old cinema fixtures. So yeah. we've got quite a lot out next week, but we've, yeah. we've picked out Whitney, which is the Kevin MacDonald documentary. The second uh, one The second year. one of, of the year, and supposedly the better one as well. Uh-huh. Then a, a strange-looking film called Ideal Home, which is Steve Coogan and <gasps> mm-hmm. Paul Rudd. Yeah. Uh, as a sort, It looks a bit like The Birdcage. A little it, bit, yeah. It sort of vibes, but um, yeah, we'll see. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, Michael Cimino's uh, The Deer Hunter, which is right. being re-released next week. Uh, 4K news. restoration. Fantastic. Bit of a classic. I feel like we haven't done one of those for a while. A so. new Hollywood classic, yeah. exactly. I think quite a bucket list film for many people, including me. Right. Mm-hmm. So if uh, you want to get watching The Deer Hunter and send us your comments, we're on Twitter at LWLies. There's the email address, truthandmovies at tcolondon.com. And, of course, there is also lwlives.com slash podcast, the comments field on there. I suppose that just leaves me to say thank you, Adam, for joining me today. Thank you. And thank you, Manuela. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening. I've been Michael Leader, and as always, this has been a 7 Digital production. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.